you pay to listen to this show as a podcast? Well, good news. You don't have to. But this week on Download This Show, Apple unveil new plans for podcasters to get paid on the Apple Podcast platform. Plus, digital horse racing is apparently a thing, but can you trust it? India cracks down on social media posts critical of the government's handling of the COVID crisis. And we have some eavesdropping Google news. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. We are joined by Peter Marks, software developer from Access Informatics. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mark. Good to see you. And Meg Coffey, social media strategist and the best Texan accent in Perth. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me. Given that we did call the show Download This Show, uh, it seems only fitting that we're talking about podcasting up this week. Big announcement out of Apple. They're going to change their relationship with the podcasting environment, which is huge because, I mean, let's be honest, podcasting kind of starts with the iPod. Meg, what have they announced? Yes, well, our good friends at Apple have announced that they're going to allow you to put your podcast on their system for a measly 30% cut of it. It's actually going to be fantastic. (laughs) All right, all right. So let me break this down. So this is interesting, Peter. Apple will let podcast publishers sell subscriptions to individual shows. Why have they decided to do this now? Well, I think podcasting is still in its infancy. I mean, it started only in 2004 when uh, Adam Curry and Dave Weiner specified using RSS, which was used for text news feeds up until then, as a way of distributing a series of episodes. So it's always been an open standard. It just worked like the web. Of course, Apple's added a lot of value over the years by running the podcast directory, for which is the one that's used by all of the players. But it's been difficult to monetize. At the moment, podcasts are monetized either by sort of donations you know, using one of those uh, buy me a coffee sort of things or buy ads built into them. Apple, of course, has a platform that handles subscriptions. It's used for a lot of apps. And what they're doing is they're basically using that platform, which means that there's a payment system in place that people already uh, trust and are used to using. So it will make it easier for smaller podcasts who don't want to set up all the financial stuff themselves to sell their podcast subscriptions through the Apple platform. But let's be honest, though, there's a lot of competition now. Obviously, you've got Spotify launching exclusives, Audible have exclusives. Podcasts originally started as that open standard of Mm. RSSs, but it's not that now. I mean, surely the format has grown beyond the delivery mechanism. Well, behind the scenes, the plumbing is open, which means that a player can basically subscribe to any podcast. And I think, unfortunately, what's happening is we're starting to turn into silos where there is exclusive content just on Spotify or Audible, as you said. And I think that's a bad thing. It's starting to move in the direction that we've seen with subscription video, where you've got to subscribe to multiple services. So Apple, interestingly, does not require people to be exclusive with Apple. So that's a good thing. And I guess you could have a subscription that you can buy through your, maybe you get it through Spotify or Amazon or maybe in the future Google, uh, or you could make money through the Apple platform. So they're not really requiring that it become proprietary, but I think we're, you know, alarm bells are ringing that maybe this is the beginning of the, of the, uh, the breakup of this open podcast platform. I mean, it's been growing really well. And I think the fact that it was open and not encumbered with any proprietary technology is a really good thing. I just hope we're not ending the, you know the end of that really lovely era newspapers have exclusives television networks have exclusives 
subscription video services like Netflix have exclusives. Why is it necessarily bad that the audio world doesn't start to have the same thing? Well, because you end up having to subscribe, like video, you know, you have to subscribe to five different streaming video services in order to get all of the programs that you want. And I think that's, that's a real pity. And it kind of drives people back to the old days of piracy. If they really want to get a show and they don't want to subscribe to, the, you know, the whole thing, then, you know, the, the door is open for other options, which is, which is sad. I really like the way any podcast player at the moment can pretty much get any podcast. You can just search for it in each of them. And look, you know, to Apple's credit, they have provided a platform that's open and they do a lot of work. They run this directory and they keep spam and they keep, you know, mm. copies of things out of it. So they must have staff working on this all the time. They've never asked for any money. I mean, obviously they make money by selling devices and, you know, hence the name. They used to sell a lot of iPods. Now I guess they sell a lot of phones. And uh, so they do make money in a way. But look, this, this you know, people trust. They're used to buying things through Apple. They've already got their credit card on, you know, on file. It'll be like a one tap to subscribe. And uh, Apple's even said the price can be anything you like. I think it starts at 49 cents a month US and up from there. But as you said, it'll be uh, 30% they take, but that's only in the first year. It'll be 15% after that. So, you know, maybe the prices will be driven down over time and it won't be too bad. Given Apple are now offering a subscription model, is that now a sort of tacit admission that podcast advertising doesn't work? Because that seems to be the direction most of these services are going in, subscriptions. I think that advertising, like everything works, but, you know, Apple is the one that's leading the charge at, at not using our data and being aware of how we're tracking. And we all know that we need tracking and data if we're going to have effective advertising. So Apple can't exactly be going in and going, yes, advertising is the way to go um, when they're the ones leading the charge going, no, 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 protect your data. I think what Apple's doing is providing a way that smaller players who don't have, you know, a big publisher behind them and all of that infrastructure can actually make a little bit of money out of the podcast and that will encourage them and it won't be, have too much friction for users to actually sign up. A lot of uh, podcasts I know have ads that have become increasingly annoying. Uh, <laughs> tech meme ride home, I'm looking at you, glaring at you. <laughs> and, uh, and what they do is they run these ads and they constantly say, if you want to get the ad-free version, then just go and sign up here and uh, you can get it that way. So that's one way of getting it. It's very difficult to, to transition people from something that was free across to something where they have to pay a subscription. And, you know, by Apple doing this, they're making it easier for podcast publishers to do that. It's uh, the argument that it helps smaller publishers is really interesting to me because you do need a hyper motivated audience that really want to give you money, Meg. Do you think that the psychology is there that people are willing to pay for something? I, I guess the comparison is newspapers, right? For the longest time, newspaper websites were free and then they've gradually transitioned a, a pretty decent sized chunk of the market over to paying for stuff. What's involved in moving a consumer from a free model to a paid model? Quality. I, I genuinely think, you know, when, when we yell about, say, the newspapers, you know, the newspapers that are focusing on the investigative reporting and the, the in-depth stories, they're the ones that are succeeding at that paywall because you can't get that information anywhere else, right? So so you do pay because it's something that you're really interested in. So I think if we look at the, at the podcast or if we look at anything, freemium television, you know, when there's quality, when there's something that you can't get anywhere else and, and it's something that you want, then of course you're willing to pay for it. When we look at, you know, stuff that I can find on, on 
1200 other websites or radio stations, then no, then, then I want that for free. So I think if, if, you know, you do have those added values, you only get this if you subscribe or, you know, well, you know, it's a access to our special newsletter or our extra friends list. I think, yeah, if there's, if there's something quality there, then people will definitely pay for it. What do you think of the, the cut? They're talking about taking 30%, which is roughly in line with what uh, Apple take when other parts of their stores like um, app stores and whatnot, and then they'll drop the cut to 15% after in time. Do you think the cut is fair, Peter? <laughs> well, there's been a lot of criticism of Apple taking that 30%. But what they're doing, though, and it kind of makes sense that the first year is fairly high because they're helping with the customer acquisition by making it easy on the platform for someone to sign up. That That's a big cost in, in anything. You know, you, you look at the cost of acquiring each new subscriber is, is very high, and typically that's done through advertising. So I can understand what they're saying, and it is a model they've used in the past. As I said, they drop it to 15% in subsequent years. So if someone stays with you, then Apple really isn't doing much except, you know, doing the credit card processing, which should be about 2% or something. So uh, as I said, I think it might come down over time. I think there'll be competition. I think uh, both Google and Amazon are platforms that have payment systems that people trust, and they both have podcasts. So I wouldn't be surprised if they follow suit and they'll all have to settle down to a slightly lower margin. Meg, it's worth pointing out that Audio has become a really crowded space recently. Obviously, that we've talked a little bit about things like Clubhouse, which is a live one. We know that Facebook is planning to create its version of something called Clubhouse. Why is it that audio has suddenly become such a busy space? I think there's a couple of things. One, the main one being Zoom fatigue. You know, <laughs> all of <laughs> All of us are, um, you know, we're over having to to do multiple things at once to keep our attention. You know, when you're on Zoom, it's not just talking, it's paying attention. You're getting distracted by the other people or how you look. And, and with audio, it's simple. I just set it down. I can put it at the corner of my desk and listen. And if I want to talk, I can. And if I don't, it's okay. And I don't feel guilty for having my camera off or it's Zoom fatigue. Honestly, I think that that... It's, it's audio came around at the right time and place, you know, especially for those in the US or the UK who were in lockdown, you know, you're stuck at home on a Friday night, you're not allowed to go out. So let's jump on a giant conference call with all of our friends. Do you think things like Clubhouse are working, Meg? Look, I think Clubhouse is a funny one. I, I think Clubhouse is going to be the meerkat of audio. <laughs> You probably need to explain that Meerkat was a was a short-lived short video app that didn't survive because when you say yeah, that so it sounds like it's a small like... furry animal that picks its head up. <laughs> but it's almost like that, right? It just popped its head up and now it's gone. Look, uh yeah, so so Meerkat was the very first of the live streaming apps and then Twitter came along with Periscope, which it's now shuttered, yeah. but it came along with Periscope and Periscope was the live streaming app that that put Meerkat to bed. I think what we have to understand is that audio is not an app. Audio is a feature. It is something that is, it's not necessarily its own thing. And Clubhouse, all that Clubhouse does is allow people to talk. Mm. And I think that people need more. As much as I just said Zoom fatigue, I think we, we need just that little bit more. And that's why for me, like I love Twitter spaces. There, there's reactions. You can pin links. Um, it's quite funny where you say about the tech meme ride home. I um, I listen to their Twitter spaces. There's no ads in that. It's perfect. <laughs> um, audio is here to stay. I think it's just now which app is going to be able to adopt it and make it work 
best. And for me, I, I think Twitter is going to lead that. I, I, I don't see LinkedIn winning. I think enough people are so teed off with Facebook right now that they could bring the feature out. But the people that use this type of feature aren't necessarily the ones that are on Facebook anymore anyway. Well, if they make it a separate app, though, like, you know, p- there are people using Instagram aren't unaware that it's a Facebook product, you mm. know, like I think I think if you can disaggregate it from the stench of, of everything that is Facebook right now, I think it might take off. Just um, one thing I did want to pick up on there uh, very quickly before we move on, Meg, you said Twitter spaces for people that have never used it before. What exactly is that? So it's the audio version and it is still sort of in beta. You pretty much, if you want to apply, if you want spaces, you can apply and you can get it. Just Google Twitter spaces application maybe, and that's the best way to find it. But it is it is the audio conference call aspect of Twitter. And it's this little thing that lives at the very top of your Twitter feed. There are these little purple circles. If you're active on Twitter, you might even see people who have purple circles in their, their names. And that's to say they have spaces or they're keen to be part of spaces. And it is, for lack of a better term, it's just one giant conference call. But it's amazing because it's full of people that I used to travel all over the world and pay lots of money to go in see just having a conversation about what's going on and i think i think it's a nice addition to the the daily news or it's a nice addition to a podcast because it gives you that ability to sort of talk through in a live format the news of the day or or what's been happening and and a way to connect with people that you might not otherwise and it has reactions so you can agree or disagree or smile or give the 100 or thumbs up <laughs> you know which is great and it allows you to, it allows you to post links which is fantastic it is definitely still in beta though i was listening to one the other day and chris messina the guy that invented the hashtag tried to post a link to the space and he crashed the whole room and it all went away <laughs> all right download the show is what you're listening to it is your guide to the week in media technology and culture we have meg coffee social media strategist strategist in fact is the actual word and peter mark software developer with access informatics and it's been called a tamagotchi meets horse racing and it is I want to say the most confusing story I've encountered in the week. Can you explain to me how you do digital horse racing, Peter Marks, but with non-fungible tokens? Like, can you, like, imagine I'm a six-year-old and explain to me how this works. Okay, well, a fungible thing is something that you can swap for another one and they're equivalent. I might uh, have a dollar and you've got a dollar. We swap them and we're both happy because we've both still got a dollar. A non-fungible token is a way of representing or linking to something that is unique, like uh, I I guess a real-world example might be an autographed photograph of a celebrity. So that's a unique object, even though the photograph is not unique. So NFTs are used to say that I own an original, a particular, maybe the first tweet, I think was one of the examples. And in this case, it's being used, and it's all built on the blockchain. So it's built on the same mechanism that's used to guarantee that uh, currency like Bitcoin is not spent twice. It's a public chain of cryptographically signed records. So everyone knows who has which coins or which NFTs. And so it means we can have a system where we trust each other and we don't have to have a central group to trust. And this is being used in this case for horse racing. So they're virtual horses and you can buy and sell those horses, but only one person owns each one. Uh, They have races and uh, you can even breed the horses, I believe. Uh, So this is a system. It's using, again, the blockchain technology as a way of building trust between people. And in this case, it's used for a kind of gambling. I mean, I've always suspected 
associated with online gambling. How do you know it's not rigged? How yeah. do you know that uh, behind the scenes it's really not random? With gambling machines in Australia, they have to be tested, they have to guarantee, they have to prove that they really are random. But when you're doing online stuff, that's that's not so easy to do. So this technology built on the blockchain is able to give people the trust that one person owns the horse and I guess when they race they can gamble on them and trust that they're actually getting a fair go for their bet. Okay, so because it is a gambling service, I'm not going to name the company, but I will say that they've released 4,450 digital horses. And Meg, to your point, and sort of picking up on something that Peter said then, how do we know that the horses aren't, like, what, what, like, what kind of assurances do you have as a user that the whole thing isn't rigged? How do you know it's real? A lot of faith. I don't get this. I don't understand it, but that's okay because it's not for me. To me, it just seems like it's just one giant Ponzi scheme. I don't know why you would want a photo of a photo of something that I could print out myself. It gets interesting when they were talking about breeding them because then... Yeah, I don't know how that works. It's like, like, yeah. It is a, it like, it's very reminiscent of Tamagotchis. Like, like, mm. That's the only comparison I can come back to, except there was no money at stake with Tamagotchis and therefore it felt like it wasn't so Yeah, uh, horses are selling, I think, the uh, $15,000 US people are paying for these things. So I guess Which it's a scarcity. Crazy. Because, you know, if you have faith in the blockchain and you believe in the blockchain, then you will believe in this and know that your horse is yours. And if you breed it, it is yours. But it just, it this just doesn't sit right in my gut. I just, something is telling me that this is not legit. And it's the people that are putting their money in early that are making the, the money and mm. the ones that are left at the end that won't. So, I mean, first thing I'll say, Peter, is that the words faith and gambling should never be in the same <laughs> sentence together. But like, I'll, I'll put the same question to you. I mean, they've got this sort of like very like Tron looking horse races that the you can tune into. There is enormous amount of money being spent on, mm. as you say, things like stables and completely confected like digital experiences. Is there a way of actually being confident that this is completely about, like, is there any independence to it that, that <clears throat> you can have confidence in the process? Well, once again, it's the blockchain technology, which is is basically an open way. People, the blockchain is shared and distributed amongst many computers around the world and anyone can look at it and anyone can see with surety who actually owns that block or in this case, this horse, or it could be a bit of cryptocurrency. I think Ethereum is the one that's most often used for NFTs. The cryptocurrency, yep. Yeah, so but uh, Ethereum actually has other features beyond the Bitcoin one. It can be used for contracts and things like that. So, you know, it's a it's a publicly trustable, it's it's a cryptographically secure. It's very difficult to game the system. There is a thing called a 51% attack where you have to invest a huge amount in computers all over the world in order to even start to create doubt in the system. So it is very secure and it's publicly secure. Uh, think about it when you're doing online banking. You are just trusting that the bank is not going to mess it up. It may be the software bug or something. With the blockchain, anyone can look at it and you can get a copy of the blockchain and you can validate that it's all correct. So I think it is a way of actually providing trust without having to trust one central body. So I think it is a good application. Look, people bet on all sorts of things and they have to trust that the bookie is doing the right thing. This is a way of opening it up. Meg, you're about to say something? I don't know. Oh, I was just going to say, <laughs> Meg, I, I mean, we've broken I trust Meg, you guys. 
<laughs> I trust the bank. It's been there for a hundred years or 200 years. I mean, maybe I'm old school. I don't know. To me, that this sort of seems a bit like baseball cards or... It is. You yes. know, that, that's a comparison that I think comes up a lot. Also, I, I would like to note that the phrase, I trust the banks, is a one that's yeah, going to come back to bite you. that's not always a good you, idea. Meg, I swear. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I'm old school like that. And I just, like, I've got friends that are all about this NFT and, you know, the crypto. And I just... I will put my old hat on and just say, I just don't understand how it's legit. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate for me. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And no doubt you'll have seen some of the horrific footage coming out of India, which is now experiencing a a new and really terrifying wave of COVID-19. But it's also come with a wave of censorship. We've seen India crack down on social media posts, uh, particularly cracking down on people criticising the government's response. What have they taken offline, Peter? Uh, They've asked Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to remove some hundreds of posts critical of the government's handling of the crisis. And... I'd have to say they've uh, very quietly agreed to do that, uh, which is a bit strange. Apparently, they are legally valid requests in that country. So Twitter, for example, has said, yep, we took them down. I don't think Facebook has actually said anything about it, but they have actually complied. Now, Twitter has said that they've removed them for viewers in India. So that suggests to me that they're still up there and uh, an Indian user could perhaps use a VPN to actually access them. I wonder if this isn't going to lead to the Streisand effect where the attempt to send or something actually draws more attention to it than it would have normally got. I'm sure this, well, obviously the story is available in India and people would be hopping on VPNs and going to see which tweets have been deleted and then saying, well, why is that one so sensitive? What makes it a valid legal request, Meg? Well, I think what we often forget is that the rules of communication and the rules of free speech are very different in every country. And just because it's allowed to be said here doesn't necessarily mean that it is elsewhere. And what India is saying is that these these tweets go against their communication laws, that they're saying things that violate their laws and therefore the platforms need to pull them down. And the platforms go, do you know what? In the countries that we operate, we have to abide by local laws. You know, they're saying that these, while they might not necessarily violate our rules, so like in Twitter, they haven't necessarily violated Twitter's rules, which is why they're still up. They're violating the rules in the country in which they are published, and therefore they're going to be hidden from the people in that country. It is what you deal with when you deal with a global company. Not every country has the same rules and and the same rules around what you're legally allowed to say. So I think the platforms, they there's not really much they can do other than abide by the government rules. Is it right? Is it wrong? That's a completely different discussion. What we're talking about is the legalities and they're removing them because they legally have to. Well, it's happening here. Uh, MP Craig Kelly, uh, who was spreading anti-vaxxer, non-science material on Facebook, has had one of his Facebook pages removed here in Australia earlier in the week. So it it does happen here. But this is a game of whack-a-mole. You know, you really can't stop some of these crazy views from, you know, just popping up again and again all over the place. It would take so much moderation that the platforms would basically not be able to be viable. But this is a very difficult problem. Download the show is what you're listening to. We have a little bit of time left in the program because I did want to talk about something that uh, has, <laughs> I'll say revealed, it's been revealed that Google is planning. Uh, I actually might like, actually, I'm just going to start this idea again because I'm having one of those days. My brain and my mouth are not connecting. Uh, <laughs> with just a little bit of time, just a little bit of time left here on Download This Show, your guide to the week in media, technology and cul- 
Just a little bit of time left here on Download This Show, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Google have accidentally, let's say, revealed a feature which might be part of the new Google Android operating system and it involves whether or not Google is listening, Peter. Can you explain this to me? Yeah, so all of these platforms, the talking platforms, uh, the uh, Google Assistant, Amazon Alexa and Apple Siri all have a phrase or a word that you use to wake it up and say, I'm about to give you a command. I won't say any of them here because I have seen it myself <laughs> listening to a podcast in the car and waking up my phone, which is no good, so don't say them. Uh, so you say, hey, dingus, and then it starts recording what you say, sends it off to the cloud to interpret and then says, okay, you know, here's what you wanted to have done. The lights are on or off or whatever <laughs> it is. Now, in some circumstances, that can be annoying. Say timers, when you set a timer and the timer's going beep, 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 you really don't want to go, hey, dingus, stop the alarm. So what they've got is a shortcut where you can just say stop. So in that context, a timer is going off and it'll listen for other words like stop. So what they're proposing, I think the feature was leaked, as was called guacamole, and it basically has some shortcuts in certain scenarios. Another one is when the phone is ringing, you can say answer or decline without having to show the wake up thing. So the thing that is a problem for people is many people are distrustful of having a device with a live microphone in their house connected to the cloud that it might be accidentally uploading, you know, recordings of what you're saying. And there is some evidence that that happens because the trigger word gets picked up inadvertently. This, of course, would suggest this would be even more likely to pick up stuff. It has actually happened. The first Google minis that were given out to the press, including myself, had a bug and some of them, the switch was locked down and all of the audio was being uploaded. They did fix that, though. So I think it's natural for people to be worried about this, and maybe this is eroding that security a little bit more. How do you feel about it, Meg? Holy guacamole! <laughs> some, I mean, somebody had to say it. <laughs> I know, I know. I did love how you pronounced guacamole, Peter, though. That was oh, good. not the Texan um, way? Look, I think uh, this is interesting. And yes, I'd heard the stories of, of when all the assistants first came out and um, things getting recorded that they shouldn't do or people getting called by accident when they were actually being spoken about in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, awkward. Look, I, I kind of think that if you're going to accept having one of these assistants in your house, that you are going to accept that it's always listening. That's maybe where we need to be with technology. Look, I know that my iPhone is not always listening to me because they tell me that it's not, but I think it is. It doesn't bother me that they're changing this thing, but I also, I think because that's that's how I think and how I feel. I think for the average customer, they do assume that they're not being recorded and that they're not being listened to. And therefore, this could be problematic. And, and how do you know that it isn't always listening? I think it also is yeah. a little bit about who's doing the listening, right? So I have my Apple devices set to, to constant listen. So when I say, hey, let's go with your, your example, hey, dingus, yep. I, it's ready, right? I don't have Google or Amazon on because they're in part because I know that they're constantly accruing data for advertising purposes, which is fine. That's partly why I, you know, like it's, you know, it's the deal that you do with those companies. But if, for me, I feel more comfortable with Apple in part because I know Apple isn't at its heart an advertising business and it's not in a data acquisition business. And I think maybe some of this, Peter, is about who's doing the listing. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know that, uh, well, both Google and Amazon are, are running huge algorithms to suggest products to you and to sell advertising that's targeted. you. This is the deal with the devil. I mean, we all want ads that are interesting to us. We want ads that uh, are things we're looking at. Uh, the dog, you know, the dog wants dog food and we should see an ad at that point. It's not so annoying. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, iOS 14.5, the latest version that's just come out and look at all of the data that has been gathered by apps like Facebook. It's absolutely astonishing what they're gathering. Have a scroll through it. It goes on and on and it is frightening. And of course, that can be used for good to make uh, your ads more interesting or for evil to try and sell you things that you didn't even know you needed. Well, it sounds like we should let Meg go uh, feed the dogs. That is all we've got time for on the show this week. Meg, thank you so much for joining us this week. Oh, thank you for having me, despite the dog and despite the lockdown. I appreciate it. <laughs> the pleasure was entirely ours. Meg Coffey is a social media strategist and Peter Mark, software developer with Access Informatics. It's such a joy to have you back on the show. Thanks, Mark. Great to talk to you. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. <laughs> 